a mother knocks on her son's bedroom door and says, get up, you're going to be late for school. The son says, I can't go. The mother says, why not? The son says, I can give you two reasons. The kids all hate me. The teachers all hate me. I can't go. The mother says, you got to go. The son says, why do I got to go? The mother says, I'll give you two reasons. One, you're 54 years old. Two, you're the principal. Like, like I said, an oldie but a goodie. I'm sure everyone here knows this one, but uh, I say it to this crowd because there's knowing it and there's, there's knowing it, uh, living it. Uh, principles, they say it's lonely at the top. You get it from all sides. You get it from all sides, from the parents, from the teachers, from the students. It's not an enviable position. Not an enviable position. Um, and yet, each of you responds daily to the call, to this holy mission, and you do it. So, so first and foremost, I just want to acknowledge that the people in this room do a difficult job uh, that, is, that is often thankless. No, 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 thankless would be pretty good. <laughs> thankless means you're not getting any thanks. This is you're not getting thanks and all the criticism. Everything's your fault, right? It's always your fault. <sighs> so first and foremost, just a little bit of acknowledgement for yourselves and uh, the commitment that each of you displays on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes we see the fruits, sometimes we don't, but I promise you that your commitment and your dedication and your sacrifice has an effect on families, on generations, on Klal Yisrael, beyond what you fathom. Beyond what you fathom. This, this I am 100% sure. That's, this I can guarantee. It's not my guarantee. It's the Abishter's guarantee. A principal gets a, a call from a teacher about a known problem student. There was a problem student. He came from a very rough background, a very sort of a street kid. And the principal gets a call. The teacher says, there's a general studies teacher teaching American history. He says, I asked this child, he names the name of the child, in, in American history class, who shot Abraham Lincoln? And this very rough kid looks at me and he says, hey, I didn't see anything, I didn't hear anything. The principal says, I'll take care of it. Goes to the principal, principal's gotta take care of it. The principal calls in this child's father to come down to school 
for a meeting. Principal says, Mr. So-and-so, I just want to inform you, your son was in history class, and the teacher asked him, my teacher asked your son, who shot Abraham Lincoln? And he says, I didn't see anything, I didn't hear anything. What do you say about that? The father says, listen, my kid's telling the truth. He says he didn't see anything, he didn't see anything. You deal with all kinds, and uh, often you're the voice of authority. You're often the voice that people don't want to hear because you are the one who has to lay down the law, right? You're like the cops. People see a police car driving behind them, they get nervous. No offense, but when people see your phone number on the caller ID, they don't say, oh, good, oh, look at, <laughs> mommy, the principal's calling. No, no, they get nervous. And they get defensive. Hey, my kid didn't see nothing, he didn't hear nothing, right? They get defensive, they get nervous, they're on guard. So, right out the gate, you're working with resistance. Here's what I want to tell you. I did not come here today to tell you about Chinuch. That would be absurd. I don't know anything about Chinuch that, that, that you don't know. You know a thousand times more than I do. It would be absurd if I'm going to get up here, I'm going to tell you about Chinuch, or I'm going to tell you about how to run a school. You're the experts. It's not me. It's not me. So, what am I doing here? Natak, it's a question. What am I doing here? There, there was a book that came out. It was a New York Times bestseller called Shut Up and Sing. What, what, what's the name? Shut Up and Sing. There was a famous rock singer from a famous, famous band. And he was performing at a sold-out stadium. And in between songs, he got up and he started pontificating about politics. He started talking about politics. And somebody in the audience shouts out, and his voice carries and is heard over the entire crowd, hey, shut up and sing. In other words, you're a singer. Don't come here and talk politics. That's not your area of expertise. We don't need to hear from you about that. Do the thing that you do. So in that spirit, I'm not going to come here and tell you about how to be a principal. I'm not going to come here and tell you about doing the things that you do well already. What would be the point of that? Why should I tell you how to do well what you know how to do that you're the experts of, and I'm not? What I'm going to try to do is shut up and sing. So my version of that, what, what do I know a little bit about? Let, let me... Let me offer to you a vision, okay? And maybe it's a vision that some of you once had and that over time you sort of retired that vision because you decided it wasn't practical. Or maybe it's something that's beyond what you've 
dreamt thus far. Maybe it's, it's, it's a new idea. But I just want to float it out there, and I want you to listen and see how it feels. As opposed to what we're describing before, that you are like, you induce the reaction that police cars induce from drivers out on the road. Instead of being scary, instead of being the voice of authority, the call that people dread, oh no, what's it again? The principal is calling. The principal's calling. Imagine, and I'm sure that many of you can relate to this in some way already, but I, I, I want to paint it as a, an ideal. I want to I I give you the extreme version of it, the dream version of it. You don't call parents, they call you. Not to complain. Not, no, not to complain. You don't call parents, they call you for advice, support. When they need advice, when they need help, when they want to know what to do about chinuch in the home, when they want to know what to do for their children, they call you the first person they call. They seek you out. And they listen to you, and they, and they, and they cherish your time and your wisdom and your perspective. In fact, they see you as such a mentor that not only do they call you about parenting, maybe they call you about general, just life in general, guidance, because you're somebody they respect, somebody they look up to, and they feel comfortable around. Because after all, you're the principal. You're the principal of their child's school. How do you like the ring of that? Sounds good, huh? Sounds good. Who else would I turn to for support, for guidance, for wisdom? The principal. Principals. Who, who else do you go to? Principals are wise people, compassionate people, resourceful people. Principals are good people. I, a, a cop, a New York city police officer told me a story that he was once walking through a park and a father said to a kid, the father was disciplining the kid and said, hey, if you don't behave, that policeman over there is going to arrest you. And the police officer overheard it and he came over and he said to the father, can you come over here? For, I don't, I don't want to speak in front of your child. Can you come aside and I want to speak to you privately. The policeman says to the father, he says, do you know what you just did? When your child is in trouble, I want him to run toward me, not away from me. You just threatened him that if he's going to be bad, you're going to get me? So imagine the reverse, that people see a police officer and they say, wow, there's someone who's helpful. There's someone I can trust, somebody I can turn to. Imagine if the stereotype about principles, just the culture, if we could change the culture. And by the way, there's enough people in the room today, right here, and it's not just the number of people, it's also not just kamos, it's the echos, not just quantity, it's quality. The influence that the people in this room have, these are very influential people, yes? Everyone here is a leader. So 
the number of people we have, as, 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 in addition to the positions of leadership that everyone in this room has, we could, from this room today, start to change the culture. We could. We could start to make a change in the culture that parents and children look to, to, to principles as loving, respectful, trustworthy, wise mentors and guides. You don't call them, they call you, and not with complaints. They call you because they want your advice. So this is my shut up and sing. I don't know how to do what you do. You do it incredibly well already, or you wouldn't be in the position that you're in. That's not what I'm here to tell you. What I would like to offer you, and I'm hoping that it's something you can implement in what you already do, is I do know a little bit after trial and error, it wasn't always this way, getting it wrong and then getting it right and then getting it wrong again and getting it right. I do know how to get people to come to me to ask advice. And they say, and I have to believe them, that they're happy that they did. So if I can share that with you, and if I can give you that tool, that you can become known that way in your school, in your community, you can be known as the go-to person, that would make me extremely happy. If I could just give that tool to you, um, and you run with it, and perfect it in your own way, give it your own tweak, your own style, and just become the person that people look to for guidance. Instead of having to fight with them, will you just listen to me? Can I just give you some advice? No, to the contrary, they come to you. Teach me, guide me. That's what I'd like to do. Sounds like a reasonable agenda for the next 20, 30 minutes. I hope so, because that's what I have planned. It's okay, all right. I mean, I could change it up on the spot, but who knows? If I start improvising, I don't know what will come out. There was once uh, a fellow back in the Altaheim, in the shtetl, who was looking for Parnosa. And somebody told him that in his town, there were not enough wagon drivers. He should become a wagon driver, Balagola. So, how do you become a Balagola? Shimush, apprenticeship. You have to find a veteran to teach you the ropes. So this fellow, he sought out a veteran driver, someone who had been driving wagons for many years, and he studied with him for a month. And after a month of study, there was the faher, there was the test. First question in the test, the veteran Balagola asks the Balagola in training, your horse falls in a ditch and cannot get out. What do you do? And the Balagola in training says, well, the first thing you do, and the veteran Balagola cuts it off and says, you know what? 
I don't think you're ready for the test. So they trained for another month, learning how to deal with the horses, how to deal with the wagon, the harness, the whole system. Now two months of training have gone by, time for another faher, another test. And the veteran asks the trainee, your horse falls in the ditch, you can't get out, what do you do? And the trainee says, well, you know, the, the first thing when, you, when a horse falls in the ditch, and the veteran says, I'm sorry, I, I think this test isn't going anywhere, we've got, we got to train a little bit longer. And they train for a third month. With the horses, with the wagons, the whole thing, living like a balagola for another month. And after the third month elapses, there's another faher, another test. They sit down, and the veteran asks the trainee, your horse falls in a ditch and can't get out. What do you do? And the trainee says, Oi, tate, se peter. And the veteran says, Now you're a balagola. You know, there's a clout. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. So expertise meaning knowing the official answer, knowing the official answer is one skill. But what makes you ready to actually go and implement the skill in real life is not your knowledge, not that you know the answer, how to take a horse out of a ditch. What makes you ready for real life is compassion. That you know the feeling, that you understand the brokenness of horses falling in ditches and they can't come out and the pain and the watching the, the, the suffering of the animal and, and at the same time thinking about the, 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 how you're going to put bread on the table and how you're going to support your family. Until you feel that, you're not ready to be a balagola. So the first thing that people want is compassion. Not they want, they need. There's a vart, a very yusaitistic avart in just how to be a human being in, uh, in the Sefer Emes Liankiv from Biankiv uh, Kamenetsky. He talks about Tamais and Parshish Vayetze when Yankiv Avinu comes to the well and he sees the shepherds and he has this whole conversation with them. He says, Achai, my brothers, may I not them, where are you guys from? And they have a whole discussion. And after a few psukim, then Yanki Ravino says to them, by the way, the day is still long. Why are you sitting around fabrenging? You should be working. And Yanki Kamenetsky says, this is a limud in how to talk to a person. You don't jump in and point out what he's doing wrong. You don't jump in, this is, 
First of all, Achai, my brothers, approach him with brotherhood, with chiba, with affection. Second of all, what's going on? Where are you from? How's your family? How's Parnosa? Get into a conversation. You're going to come out of nowhere and start telling me how to live my life. You don't know me. Right? We hear this from kids. We hear this from kids, this complaint. How is this teacher going to tell me how to do this or that? She doesn't know who I am. I want to tell you something. It's not just kids. It's adults. Parents feel the exact same way. Parents won't say it. But parents feel that. And that's what happens when you're talking to a parent and you're realizing that they're checked out. Parents, you know, the, there really are no adults. There's little children and big children. And when a, when a parent gets a call from a principal, they have the exact, it's primal, just there's this instinctive reaction that they've been wired to have since they were children. The authority is calling, I'm in trouble, I'm going to have to sit here quietly and wait for it to pass. What if you threw them for a loop and you say, Achai, may I not tem? Tell me where you're coming from. Not literally, are you from Choron? That was, you know, Pashat Pshat. But where are you coming from? What's, what's your background? What's your story? How did you get to this point? Tell me a little bit about who you are. It's a whole different yachas. It's a different relationship. Compassion. Zamaisa, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe. He was a younger brother. He had an older brother named Rebbe Zalman Aroin. And when they were children, they used to play Rebbe and Chosid. That was the game they used to play in Lubavitch, Rebbe and Chosid. So one time they were playing Rebbe and Chosid. And the older brother, as you would expect, you know, when the older brother is playing with the younger brother, so he takes the role of Rebbe, and he tells the younger brother, you be chosid. So the future Rebbe Rashab, young Sholom Doivber, says to his older brother, Rebbe Zalman Arain, he says, Rebbe, they're role-playing, you know, like kids play, except they're playing Rebbe Chosid. He says, Rebbe, I ate nuts on Shabbos. And in the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch Harav, it talks about this problem with Bayer, with the nuts. What should I, what's my tikkun? And uh, the Razor, Rebbe Zalman he gave him a tikkun. And the younger brother says, ah, Bishnishkin Rebbe. He says, you're not a Rebbe. The older brother says, well, what's wrong? I gave you a tikkun. He says, but you didn't give a krechts first before you answered. He says, by a Rebbe, it's not the answer. It's that before he gives the answer, get a kracht. And it can't be fake. No, you can't fool anybody. 
You either feel it or you don't feel it. And you're very busy people. I understand that when you are reaching out to people, you have 10 other calls to make that minute. But what I'm saying is, instead of having to call the same person 10 times throughout their child's school career, if you can slow it down and lead with compassion and personal connection, then actually in the long term, you're going to end up making far less calls. You're going to have more time. The reason you have to make 10 calls is because the person didn't hear you the first time, second time, third time, fourth time. And by the time their kid is out of your moisid, it's doubtful they heard you the 10th time. They just sat through it like a kid sits through a lecture from an authority figure. They just sat through it. I'm not saying all. Obviously, it's not an indictment of all parents and all adults. But I'm saying it's prevalent. And you know what it feels like to be talking to somebody and, and, and they don't want to hear it. So that, that's the first major tool. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. Compassion, personal connection, show them that you understand them. And by the way, this should be relatively easy compared to doing the same with children, with students. That's another discussion. Maybe it's for another lecture. The same claw, the same principle applies, but it's a little bit trickier with children because there are certain boundaries and there's certain decorum and there's a certain derecheretz uh, that the child has to have. But with, with, a, with, a, with an adult, it should be far easier to, so to speak, let your guard down and show yourself as, as a compassionate person. As a not just sympathetic, that I can hear what you're feeling, but empathetic, I can find that feeling in my own experience. That's the difference between sympathy and empathy. By the way, just so you know, every single letter that I get from the, from the Ami column, I try to find, first of all, I read the, I'm not going to get into a whole discussion how I, how I do, the, do the letters, but one of the things is, after I read it a whole bunch of times, just to make sure I know what it says, then I try to connect to how it says it, meaning the emotion, the energy that's coming off the page. I don't want to sound uh, <laughs> new age over here, but there's an energy coming off the page. There's an emotional energy. And then I try to ask myself, when did I feel like that? Not when did I feel that, because it's a different situation. And what made them feel that feeling could have been a totally different situation than anything I've ever lived through, but I'm pretty sure that if it's a human emotion, I can find it in myself where I felt it. Maybe a different experience precipitated that emotion, but what's the feeling they're feeling and when did I feel that way? Just in general, a life tool. I mean, you could use this at home too. I mean, if you really want to go expert mode. The, the easiest is with strangers. The hardest is with uh, the people you live with. But you know, you could start experimenting with the parents in school. Hear the feeling, connect to the feeling, feel what it is that they're feeling. When did I feel that way once? And, and the brilliant thing is, you don't have to give them any solutions. 
You just have to, you have to give a krechts, a real one. And it, it's amazing the power that that krechts has more than any smart things that you're going to tell them. Sometimes we don't have an answer. A lot of times we don't have an answer, but, but I, I, I can show you that I care. And that goes such a long way. When you show that you care, when they know they can turn to you for compassion, even if you don't have advice, even if you don't have anything to say, that's what starts turning the tide between I see a police officer and go the other way, I see a police officer and I go to them and I say, I need help, I'm lost. You're a police officer, can you, can you help me find my way? And I just want to remark again, we can change the culture because if you start doing this in your school, okay, people talk, especially Jews, Jews talk. So you start changing the, the culture in your school, it's contagious in, in a good way. And, and it changes the reputation, it changes the image. And, and you know, very quickly we could change the entire perception that the, it's, it's unwritten. I mean, it, nowhere is it written somewhere in a book that you, know, you should be nervous when your child's principal calls doesn't have to be written. It's just we're, we're trained through experience to feel that reaction. But very quickly, we could change that. We could train a generation to get excited. Oh, the principal is calling. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Your call could light up somebody's day. You, what I want to tell you, though, by the way, is not only you could be that person, if you think about it, you already are that person to at least one parent in your school. I'm sure more, but if you want to start practicing, start practicing. I know you have a lot of calls to make, but think of that parent who does light up, who does look up to you. Are you thinking of them? And, and you don't have to stay on the phone for a long time. Just call up and say, hey, Achai, may I in Atem, where are you from? Where are you coming from today? Where are you holding? And then just end the conversation, no business. Nothing official, just, I was just checking in. I was speaking, you know, the divorce from, from Yankov Kamenetsky, there's a story, it's a story about, uh, about Yankov Kamenetsky that one time he was in a doctor's office in the waiting room. So most of the people know it, but he was sitting in a waiting room of a doctor's office and there was a little uh, non-religious Jewish boy and he couldn't speak with the boy but there was a ball, there were toys in the waiting, in the waiting room of the doctor, there were toys, there was a ball there and he played catch with the boy in the waiting room because he knew that was the only connection that he could have with this child. And that whatever else would happen when this child would think of the tzir of a frumayid, a yid metabord, he would think of somebody who had a connection, somebody who was open to give and take, throwing the ball back and forth. And you're gonna say, you had a chance to talk didn't you ask him about Did you ask? You know what? 
for this boy, he didn't need Chidushe Torah. He just needed to throw a ball back and forth. That's the connection. That's the connection. Sometimes you're overthinking it. I, I hate to say, you think you have to have something brilliant to say. And maybe you even do have something brilliant to say and you're eager for people to hear it. But what I'm telling you is, Labdafka, do they need to hear your brilliance? They just want you to play ball. Playing ball, just a connection. Just, I throw it to you, you throw it back to me. Okay, I, I don't mean with a ball. I mean emotionally. I open up, I make an overture, I throw some energy your way, and then I open up and you throw the energy back. We toss that energy back and forth a few times. That's called a rapport. Changes the whole relationship. Now when I do have to call about business, it's a totally different phone call. In fact, maybe even you call me about business before I have to go track you down and find you. Why? Because you come to me because we have a rapport. Who else are you going to talk to about your problems in life, your challenges? Of course, the principal, because the principal knows you. The principal cares about you. The principal knows your family, knows your life. So one thing I hope comes out of this room is we start to create that reputation. It just becomes a known thing that everybody lights up when they get a phone call from the principal. That's rule number one. Compassion, personal connection. Know how to sigh, and you don't even have to be that smart. Okay, rule number two. Don't worry, I only have, there's 24 rules. Nobody has to go anywhere today, right? I'm, actually, I'll, I don't know how many rules there are, but I'm gonna tell you about two. I'm just gonna tell you about two. So the two biggest ones, at least in my humble opinion. So the first one is compassion and connection. Let them know that you care, and you have to really care. And then you don't even have to be that smart. Rule number two, is also you don't have to be that smart. It's a different way of not having to be smart, but it's the same, same maskona. You don't have to be that smart. Rule number two is say it back to them. Say it back to them. I do this all the time, and people love it. People praise it. They say, wow, that was brilliant. That was ingenious. You know the secret? I told back to them what they told me. Of course they like it. <laughs> Sometimes we need to hear it in somebody else's voice. Sometimes the clarity comes when we hear it in somebody else's voice. Then it feels objective. It feels real. So listen carefully. Talking is listening. Listening is not waiting to talk. You know, they say that the word listen L-I-S-T-E-N is the same letters as silent. Just be silent. You don't have to have anything smart to say. Just be silent. People will tell you the best advice. Just file it. Wait. Wait for them to really, really, really be completely done. And then tell them back what they told you and they'll say, wow, you're a genius. And you don't have to break the illusion. You can let them think, yeah, yes, I am. I'm very smart. Yes, I know a lot about people. That's true. But they, they tell you what they need to hear. In fact, let me, let me state it a little bit differently. You can't tell anybody anything they don't already know. 
It is pointless. You cannot teach anybody anything they don't already know. The only thing you can teach people is what they already know. Well, then, how do people learn new things? And what's the point of a teacher, a mentor, a guide? The point is like this. They come to you with a kernel, with a little grain, a tiny little nakuda, and then you give it words. You give it mashalim. You give it, you flesh it out with a story, with a vort. But you're telling them what they already know. And when a person hears what they already know, obviously they can hear it, they can receive it, because it's coming from them. It's sort of like, you know, an organ donation that sometimes the body rejects the organ because it doesn't come from the body, so the body recognizes the organ as attacking the system. What, what, we, we gave you an organ. I mean, the, we donated to you. It could save your life. Why are you rejecting it? But the body doesn't know that. The body just feels this is not me. So listen to people's wisdom and give it back to them. There will be no organ rejection. They just take it in organically, naturally, because it comes from them. Reb Simcha Bunim used to say a mashal about going to a Rebbe. They asked, what, what's the idea about, behind going to a Rebbe? So Reb Simcha Bunim said like this. He said, Amol, he saw a story that there was a Yid named Reb Itzik. And he lived in Krakow, in Poland. And Itzik, every night of his, of his life, he had a dream. The same dream, recurring dream that he travels to Prague, a city where he's never been, and he goes to the palace, and in front of the palace there's a moat, you know, a man-made river around the palace, and there's a bridge over the moat, and under the bridge he digs, and he finds a treasure chest, and he becomes rich. He has this vivid dream every night of his life, Rebitzik. So finally Rebitzik's getting older, and he decides, you know what, I know it's crazy, but I gotta go see. And he spends his life savings to make this journey. And it's an arduous journey. It's expensive, but he has to go for it. He has to see. So he travels from Krakow all the way to Prague, where he's never been, shows up, and the palace looks exactly like he always saw it in his dreams. And the moat, and the bridge, and everything. This is it. This is what he's been dreaming of. Problem is, there's a guard. There's a guard. He doesn't know what to tell the guard because he knows if he starts to dig, he's going to get, uh, who knows what will happen, he'll get arrested, get shot. So he says to the guard, listen, this is going to sound crazy, but every single night of my life, I have a recurring dream. I dream that I come to this place, and it looks just like this, and I dig under the bridge, and I find a treasure. And the guard says, oh, foolish Jew. If everyone were like you, do you know where I would be right now? I have a recurring dream every night of my life. The guard from Prague says, I dream I'm in Krakow, Poland, a city where I've never been. And in Krakow, I'm in the Jewish quarter where I can assure you I would never step foot. And in the Jewish quarter, I'm in a particular home, and he describes the home. And in the home, there's an oven. And under the oven, there are loose floorboards. And I lift the floorboards, and I find a box of treasure, and I become rich. You don't see me 
spending my good time and money running off to Krakow, looking under ovens and floorboards for a treasure in some Jew's house. And Rabbi Itzik says, I think I forgot something at home. And he turns around, he goes back, and he moves the oven and the floorboards, and he finds the treasure. The nimshal is clear. That what you're looking for, you had all along. But sometimes you have to go on a journey in order to find it. If we can be zeiche, if we can have the schus, even once in our lifetimes, to be the guard. And by the way, it's nothing more than being the guard. Don't get a big head. You know, I'm sure you as educators know the difference between the sage on the stage and the guide on the side, right? Okay, so when we have an influence in a person's life, we didn't tell them what to do, we didn't tell them how to do it, we had a schus to just, like that guard in the story, nothing more than that. It's a megalgum schus al-yidei We should be grateful the Abishter chose when this person was about to find their treasure that we were zeichet to be standing in the place to make a comment that opened their eyes that they should see what they had all along and didn't know they had. That's what a mentor, what a teacher, what a guide does. You take people's truth and you give it right back to them. And they will always remember and be grateful and they will always listen because you didn't tell them anything they don't already know but you told them exactly what they need to know because the Abishta works it out that we all have the information that we need to know already. Sometimes we just need somebody to point it out to us. It's just Tell you a story. One more story. I don't know how I'm doing on time over here. But... Uh, it's a story that happened, almost happened to me. I heard it from the person to whom it happened. And a few years ago, I was in uh, Cape Town, South Africa. The chief rabbi there, Rabbi Goldstein, makes uh, an asifa. He brings out speakers. And uh, so I was one of the speakers there. And it happened to be I was in Cape Town, South Africa. It happened to be Gimel Tamas, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's yard site. And I was sitting next to Reb Tzvi Hersh Weinreb from the OU. And so I said, Reb Heshi, do me a favor. I just don't Gimel Tamas. It's all I'm I I knew it wasn't a story, it was the story, it was the story. I already had heard the story, but I wanted him to tell me the story. So Rabbi Weinreb told me the story. He says, first of all, you should know, he lived in Crown Heights when he first got married because his wife is from the Majitzir Taubes. I'm not, and if you hear me sing, you would know that. And the Majitzir based Madras used to be in Crown Heights. So he said his, his, his connection to Lubavitcher Rebbe was he had been to, he told me, he'd been to part of a Fabrengen. That was the extent of it. He never wrote to the Rebbe, never had Yechidus. He, he, he didn't go to Fabrengen. He, he would, he's at part of a Fabrengen. So basically he knew what the Rebbe sounded like, and that's important for the story I'm about to tell you. So Rabbi Weinreb tells me the story. He says, he moves to Silver Spring, Maryland. 
and he's working as a psychologist in the school system, and then he's giving shiurei Torah in the shul. He gives one a balabata shashir, like a like a, a blat shir, and then there was a more alamda shashir for for bnei Torah. And basically, he's very, 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 very respected because he's a professional, and he's he, and, and at the same time he's a ben Torah, tamechochem, and everyone looks up to him. Okay, so what happens when everybody looks up to you and you're the answer man? What happened? Well. I mentioned the beginning of my talk, it's lonely at the top, right? So when you're supposed to know everything, where do you go when you need guidance? And so Rabbi Weinreb, as a young man, he, was, he had questions. He wanted guidance. Questions about life, questions about Yiddishkeit, about Amuna. He didn't know what to do. There was no one who could guide him. And in fact, he was very like, embarrassed about it. In fact, he, he told me for years he would not tell this story because he felt like it's too personal. And later, he, he realized it's a great story, so now he tells it. He spoke to a guy he felt was like the smartest guy he knew. There was a, a Balchova nuclear physicist in Baltimore named Naftali Berg who was a genius. So he said, I went to Berg. I said, this guy's a genius, a nuclear physicist, right? Okay. And I asked him, what should I do? So Berg was a Lubavitcher. He says, you should go to Lubavitcher Rebbe. So Rabbi Weinreb didn't know the whole thing. You know, you go for Yechidus, and you call like in advance, and you get a skip. He just looked up the number, and he calls up 770, and the phone answers. And it was Rabbi Chadakov, who was the Rebbe's chief secretary. And he answers, Rabbi Chadakov answers the phone and says, Verretdo, who's speaking? Now, here's the thing. Rabbi Weinreb didn't want to say who's speaking, because the whole nature of... This call was about personal questions that he didn't necessarily want to be associated with those questions. So he just said, he left it anonymous, he said, Ayid fun Maraland. That's it. Okay, Rabbi Chadikov didn't push. Ayid fun Maraland. Okay, was willst du fragen? Ich will fragen a por frages. And Rabbi Weinreb starts asking all the questions. And as he's asking the questions, he hears Rabbi Chadikov is repeating out loud, like word for word. It's very strange. A conversation like that. And as he finishes asking all of his questions and listening to Rabbi Chadikov repeat out loud, word for word, every question, he starts to realize what's going on here is that Rabbi Chadikov is answering the phone and he's in the Rebbe's room and he's repeating it out loud for the Rebbe. This is before speakerphone. So the secretary is being like a human speakerphone. And then there's a pause. And he hears a voice. And this is what I told you before. He didn't have much of a connection to Lubavitch, but he had been to part of a Fabrengen, so he knew the Rebbe's voice. So he hears a voice, and then, oh, Lubavitch the Rebbe's voice. And he hears the voice saying, So, in English, he hears the Rebbe say, since he's calling from Maryland, let him know that there's a Jew who should speak to in Maryland. His name is Weinreb. So Rebbe Chadukov says, did you hear what the Rebbe said? And Weinreb said a lie. He did hear. He couldn't believe what he heard, so he said, no, I didn't hear. Rebbe Chadukov said, the Rebbe says, if you're calling from Maryland, you should talk to this guy in Maryland. He's very good. His name is Weinreb. Rebbe Weinreb says, Ich bin der Weinreb. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I mean, this is an old joke, by the way. The old joke about the guy lying on a psychiatrist's couch. He says, doctor, I'm depressed. 
Doctor says, I got, I got the cure for you. There's a clown with a circus named Pagliacci. Pagliacci is so delightful, so mesmerizing. Anyone who watches Pagliacci, the clown is so just moved with joy that it makes him happy for life. So this is what I, this is what I recommend. The psychiatrist says to the guy lying on the couch, I saw in the paper this morning that the circus with Pagliacci just came to town. So you're in luck. Go to the circus, watch Pagliacci, and you're going to be better. And the guy lying on the couch says, Doctor, I'm Pagliacci. So Weinreb says, Ich bin der Weinreb. I'm the guy. And says, Hold on, in a minute. Just one second. So, he can hear Rebbe And then he hears the Rebbe's voice say, If that is the case, let it be known to him that sometimes you got to speak to yourself. That's the end of the conversation. Now, you're going to ask me, what do I take from this story? First of all, you're going to ask, how did... Don't ask me how any... I don't know how. I don't know what. It, it happened. That's what happened. That's the story. And frankly, I'm not really concerned about the mechanics of it, because if there's any... Especially if there's anything spiritual or like otherworldly going on, it's irrelevant to me, because I don't have those powers. So to hear a story about Ruch HaKadosh or anything, it's like so useless to me because I can't do that. So what am I supposed to do with a story like that? What's the hero? So I'll tell you what I thought about it. If I had never heard this story, if I were on my own, if I were my own mechunach, a self-made man, and I just had my own worldview, and I were in that position, the Rebbe's position, and some anonymous guy calls me up and says, I got a lot of problems. I'm very confused. I got a lot of questions. I don't know what to do. And then I would say, okay, fine. There's no problem. It's okay. We got a guy for you. He's very, very good. He's, very, he's got a lot of clarity. His name is Weinreb. And he would say, uh, that, that's me. I'm Weinreb. You know what I would say? What I would have said? If I, don't, if I didn't know what I know? On my own, what I would react? Oh. In that case, please, forget what I just said. Do not talk to Weinreb. He's a very confused guy. Stay away from Weinreb. But the Rebbe heard this and he didn't back down. See, this is the lesson in life. For ourselves, for others. People come to us, oh, I'm confused, I don't know, I have questions. Or even they're ashamed. Because the nature of their questions, I have doubts. And you have to have the guts to try to see the neshama. Ha-neshama sh'nesatabitahedahi. The neshama, the pure, holy, perfect neshama. That through that veneer, through that covering of that confused person, which is really just the ego, which I'm sure many of you have heard from me because I wrote it many times in my column, ego is E-G-O, edging God out. So the confusion is coming from the ego, the conscious self, 
call it Yeshis, call it Gaiva, call it Yetzahara, call it whatever you want. But you look through that and you see a neshama, and that neshama knows, that neshama has its answer, that neshama is wise, and coming from a place of purity. And you have to have the guts to say, you can tell me you're confused, I'm not faced, doesn't intimidate me. How about the confused you, go sit down and have a conversation with the you that has clarity. And if you can do that, if you know that skill, if you know that trick, everyone will think you are so smart, and you have such wisdom and such clarity, and you want to know the truth? You're just showing people the treasure that's buried in their own homes. And not only they're impressed with it, they can take it, they can receive it, because it's their own. It fits. Okay. Maisa Bepoil. Getting down the action. I'll take 30 more seconds. And then... You can go figure out how to apply all of this. <laughs> I give you homework, hopefully. Rule number one is compassion. Let them know you care and really care. Empathize. Where are they coming from? My brothers, where are you coming from? What's your story? What makes you unique? Tell me about it. I want to hear it. I'll listen. In the long run, it minimizes the workload because you don't have to say everything 10 times. Okay, compassion. And remember I said, find that person who already lights up when they get a call from you and start practicing on them and then eventually by the end of the year start calling those people who dread calls from you and get them to become people who delight in getting calls from you. Okay, rule number one, compassion. Rule number two, repeat their words back to them. But you got to listen. You got to really, really listen for the moment when their neshama is going to deliver that truth bomb and just hold on to it and wait and give it right back to them and watch the miracles happen. That's rule number two. Say it back to them. Tell them their own truth. Nobody can reject their own truth. They can reject your truth. They can't reject their own truth. And practically, you want to apply it? I have a suggestion. Okay, it sounds like a commercial at this point, but I, I mean this sincerely. We know that Counterforce offers a parenting class, parenting training. It's six weeks, six sessions. You probably know, I'm sure you know, it's been endorsed as Haskamas from Abonim, from Meshkich, from Rav Matzio Solomon endorsed it. The uh, Minsk Rebbe endorsed it. This is serious stuff. You could rely on it. Imagine if you start to build the rapport through compassion and reflective listening with just, let's make a goal, a minion of parents, 10 parents from now till the end of the year that you could guide to coming to a parenting course. Well, they'll come to you later and say, thank you for changing my life. And you don't have to tell them the secret that you didn't change their life. They changed their lives. But you had the schus 
You had the schus to be standing on the side, respectfully, watching it happen, being part of their journey. I mean, after all, why do we do what we do? I'm saying all of us here who, are, who devoted our lives to helping other people, why do we do what we do? Because our, our greatest nachas is to watch people succeed in life. That our success, let's, let's say it very simply, our success is other people's success. So you should all have nachas from the parents in your school. You should have nachas from their children, the students. You should have nachas from your teachers. You should have nachas from your own families. And we should all give the Ebishter some nachas.